This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Just About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with Lester Taylor, the mayor of East Orange, New Jersey. In the private side of his career, he's an attorney specializing in education. But he's always been interested in public service. For two decades, since he was a law student at Howard University, he's been receiving awards for his civic contributions, like working with young people. We'll talk about how Mayor Taylor took on the challenge and succeeded in changing the course of a small city. And we'll hear his advice for other people who want to make a difference. Mayor Taylor, in full disclosure, I'll say that I've known you since you were an intern in my office in Washington, back when you were a student at Howard Law School, about 20 years ago. We haven't spoken much over the years, but I was sure that you'd find your way into some kind of public service, and I wasn't surprised when I heard that you'd been elected as the second youngest mayor in the history of East Orange, New Jersey. I'm told that you weren't favored to win that primary election race against a four-term incumbent in the Democratic primary back in June of 2013, but you came from behind to earn an unexpected victory. Now, what motivated you to take on this uphill climb, and how did you do it? Well, i got to tell you, it was a transformational moment in my life uh, when I was essentially presented with an opportunity Uh, to run for mayor uh, with the backing of the uh, local Democratic Party and the county Democratic Party. Um, I had been involved with uh, politics through my professional practice, representing public entities throughout the state of New Jersey, uh, helping to raise money uh, and and helping good candidates get into office uh, locally, uh, countywide, and statewide, um, and was essentially minding my business. (laughs) Um, And I was presented and, and asked to run, and I literally had over a hundred reasons not to do it. Um, I had just become a partner in a prominent uh, New Jersey law firm. I had a young family, uh, a young son, young daughter, um, and things were going well for me personally and professionally. And the local, statewide, and national political landscape is very difficult these days. And you know, look at CNN every day, and you see the challenges of, of public officials um, and how difficult it is to accomplish change. Um, but that being said, the main reason that I decided to throw my hat in the ring was because I am a father, um, I am a husband, I am a taxpayer, and I want my community to be the best that it possibly can be. Um, and rather than sitting on the sideline and, and criticizing what is or isn't being done, I decided to uh, roll my sleeves up and be part of the change of our city. I read about you in an article in um, Ebony Magazine. I think it was written back in 2014, right after the election, and it described you as one of a a new breed of politicians, people who don't plan to be career politicians, but they want to help their communities for as long as it takes and make big change. And, And the article quoted you as saying, I'm looking to get in and make some changes and make progress and get out. Was that really the attitude that you you brought to office? It was, Bev, and I have to say, uh, you know, somewhat laughingly, uh, that one of my very first candidate forums uh, during my campaign, uh, 
Um, I, I made the political neophyte and rookie mistake uh, by saying, I don't want to be here forever. <laughs> um, and, you know, going against the 16-year incumbent, you know, part of our platform was change, uh, uh, you know, to, to uh, follow the coattails of the best president in the history of this country, Barack Obama. Um, and so, you know, my platform was transformational change um, doing one, maybe two terms. Um, what that kind of did was create people circulating, waiting for their turn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how long I'd be here. <laughs> uh, so I know better now uh, to never say that. Um, but I, I meant it. Um, I wanted to do one, maybe two terms. And quite frankly, the second term was because I really didn't think, based upon my professional experience, based upon my observation of, of government uh, locally, statewide, and nationally, things don't happen overnight. Um, even with the best of intentions, even when things go according to plan, you know, you have, you have procurement processes, you have bidding processes, you have all types of procedures that take longer than they might ordinarily take in the uh, private sector. Um, and so I thought it would take two terms to accomplish what I set out to. Uh, you know, God willing, I was able to accomplish most of my objectives in one term. Um, and so the, the essence was I didn't get into politics for a career. Uh, I had a career. I have a career as an as a, uh, attorney. Um, and I think that public service is something that, you know, should be treated as a business in some respects, albeit compassionately, um, but recognizing that while we might not produce natural gas or, or electricity or a commodity per se, uh, we are providing a service that impacts people's quality of life. You know, we've seen in, in Washington quite often members of Congress who come saying they're just going to be there for a, a term or two, they don't believe in long terms, but somehow they tend to get sucked into the process. Not everybody is able to stick to that pledge. And did you find that you were tempted to, um, once you were successful in such a surprising and big way, that have you been tempted to uh, switch gears? Or, or did you not feel that pull of a life well, of um, elected office? I'll be honest. Well, let me take the Congress per first part, uh, part first, excuse me. Um, the structure is different, you know, seniority rules. And so while, you know, bright eyes may say, I'm going to get in and make some change, the reality is a, a, a freshman congressperson can't impact much change until they work their way up the ladder with the committee-based system, et cetera. So I think that, you know, the federal level is, is much different than local politics um, and or statewide politics. Um, the second thing I'll say is, and I'll admit, that it's kind of cool being mayor, yeah. <laughs> um, especially mayor of a, a large urban city. Um, East Orange is, you know, a stone's throw from New York City. Uh, we're in the, we're neighboring, uh, our neighbor is Newark, New Jersey, the largest city in the state. Um, we are the second largest city in Essex County, uh, the most heavily Democratic county in the state of New Jersey. Um, and, and being the mayor in a strong mayor form of government, you know, I'm essentially the CEO of a $140 million company. I have a, about a thousand employees. Um, and, and so it, it's cool to be able to effectuate change in that regard. Um, you, you get access and opportunities to do so many exciting things from a political standpoint, business standpoint, and personal standpoint. Um, but all that being said, you know, I, I'm, I'm haunted slash reminded by, you know, the question I get every day from my eight-year-old son, uh, Lester IV, who calls himself the little mayor of East Orange, and my daughter, Lena, who's six years old, she calls herself the big mayor. Um, so you know who's in control of yeah. my house. 
Um, but every day it's, Daddy, are you staying? Daddy, will you be home early? Daddy, you know, what time are you coming home? Um, and so it, it really does pull on your, your heartstrings in terms of trying to be a superhero to 65,000 people. Um, and in many respects, you're neglecting the ones who are most important to you, which is your own family. Um, so that really made it a no-brainer to, uh, you know, refocus, you know, my priority on, you know, raising my children so they can be all they can be. And, you know, I'm still young. I'm 43 years old. And, and who knows what the future holds in terms of public service in the future. Yes. One of the things we talk about a lot here is that you can create and recreate your career again and again. There are always more opportunities. But let's go back to 2014 when you were starting out. You had a big list of things you wanted to change, it sounds like. But I, I know one of the issues that cities have been grappling in recent years is having a police force that reflects the community. In particular, a lot of the cities that I know, the um, police force doesn't reflect the population. They don't reflect the diversity of the community. Can, is that one of the issues that you had to tackle, and can you tell me where things are? It was. That's a great question. Um, fortunately, I inherited a police department uh, that was known nationally uh, for some of the innovations uh, it made with technology uh, going back to 2004 or so. Um, one of the problems was they had not reinvested in that technology. And so just like if you buy a TV today, it is outdated next year. Um, and so a lot of the technology had not been invested in. Um, and similarly, the people. Um, we've invested a lot in training um, our law enforcement officers. Um, our department uh, is approximately 80% African-American. Um, our population in the city of East Orange is approximately 85% African-American. Um, and so there was a Wall Street Journal article uh, came out in 2016 which talked about diversity or the lack thereof in police departments throughout New Jersey. And it looked at a lot of the large urban municipalities, um, all of which are majority minority in population but have majority Caucasian police force. Um, and it referenced one exception, that exception being East Orange, where, again, our uh, percentages are 80% and 85% respectively. Um, and what I think that does is sets a national example, not only from our recruitment efforts to recruit people from you know, the city of East Orange and or the surrounding areas um, who are first and foremost competent, you know, of the highest integrity and committed to protecting and serving, um, but also to, to be able to mesh with the fabric of the community, uh, relate to the community, particularly one that has a very large immigrant population. Uh, we have the second largest concentration of Guyanese Americans in the country next to Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we have a very large Haitian American population, uh, folks from the continent of Africa, and a growing Latino population. And so it's important that officers understand the customs and cultures of various people in order to effectively do their job. Um, we look at a lot of the issues that have gotten a lot of attention over the last three or four years nationally, um, but those issues aren't new, and they've been happening for decades, if not more, in our country. And so I'm just very happy that East Orange has a police department that reflects the community, um, but we also, um, and I don't like to brag about this, but the facts are what they are. You know, we have a crime rate today that's as low, if not lower, than it was in 1968. And what's intriguing about that is in that time frame, 1967 to about 72, East Orange was recognized nationally as the cleanest city in the country. The cleanest city in the country. 
And so we've actually put together a little motto, um, one of many models we have around here, uh, which is clean plus safe equals profitable. Everybody wants to live in a clean and safe community, and a clean and safe community results in profits for business owners, for property values, etc. And so, you know, East Orange is definitely uh, living up to the vision of the Lester Taylor administration, which is setting the standard for urban excellence. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University is having an impact today while providing innovative education for tomorrow's leaders. The master's program in public administration and environmental studies leads students to greatness in nonprofit, environmental, public sector, and government settings. Learn to lead at the Voinovich School. We're now accepting applications. Information is available at ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. Well, it sounds like you stepped into a situation where there's a history of work on, on some of the issues that matter a lot to cities these days. And it's clear that that you're proud of your city. But let me ask, when you stepped in, you you mentioned you wanted to create change. What were the issues you wanted to tackle the most, and how did you go about doing it? Well, the the issues um, were a mile long. Uh, We were dealing, notwithstanding East Orange being a safe city, you know, we're surrounded by other urban areas um, that, you know, don't enjoy a, a crime rate as low as ours. And so we are always battling our borders, so to speak, trying to not push crime out, but keep our community safe and, and keep our borders safe, uh, working interlocally with our neighboring municipalities, Newark, Irvington, uh, Orange, and Bloomfield. Um, but also, um, I'll say, adding a, a boost of energy. Um, you know, my predecessor was, and no offense to him, but I just say this for context, you know, was approaching 80 years old, um, had been in office for 16 years. Um, you know, here I come, 38, 39 years old, young family, um, able to relate to people in a different way, um, you know, playing hip-hop music on my campaign, um, really, you know, uh, creating a sense of energy throughout the community, which I'm, I'm happy to say has, has caught on, uh, like wildfire or in, in Mac, Malcolm Gladwell's uh, parlance, the tipping point. Mm-hmm. We have really hit a tipping point in our city um, where I've hired probably a dozen uh, graduates of our public school system who had since gone on and recently graduated from college to come back and work in my administration um, in various capacities. And when I asked them, you know, why are you coming back here? You know, most folks, myself included, when you, you know, leave home for college, you never want to go back. Um, and they would all say something similar to this effect. Mayor, we've been seeing what's going on. Our friends are, are talking about it. Facebook and everything is blowing up with all the events you're doing in the community, and we're excited about the city we grew up in. None of this was happening when we grew up, and we want to come back and be a part of that change. And so that's one of the most humbling, you know, results of our efforts, but it wasn't easy. Um, When I took office, we had a $10 million budget deficit, structural deficit that I inherited. Uh, We, the city of East Orange owns a golf course in the Livingston, Short Hills area of New Jersey, uh, ranked 
by a local newspaper as the most affluent zip code in the country. Um, the real estate we own out there, our golf course, was losing about $300,000 a year before I took office. Uh, we have a water utility, an independent, municipally-owned water utility, uh, one of only probably a half a dozen in the state. New Jersey has 565 municipalities, so we're one of you know, five or six that owns and produces and provides our own water. Uh, that asset was $3.9 million in debt. The director and deputy director of the organization were under indictment for falsifying water reports. Uh, one's in jail and one died before he went to jail, God rest his soul, um, for essentially taking advantage of an asset that provides the world's most necessary resource, clean water. Um, and so, you know, the challenges that were, you know, on the table in front of me would have made a sane person run away. <laughs> yeah, and you really but, had to be a CEO of a big operation. And I'll have to say, Bev, I, I think I channeled and, and triggered you uh, from the days of CNG and, and prior to it being acquired by Dominion. Uh, but to see you operate at the highest of high levels, I said, wow, how can, how can this 39-year-old African-American male turn down the opportunity to be the CEO of a $140 million company with assets that very few municipalities across our country own and control. And I'm happy to say that, you know, with some very uh, uh, cost-conscious yet aggressive financial moves, we were able to restore integrity to municipal government. We were able to stabilize and improve our finances, whereas now that $10 million deficit that we inherited, you know, just four years ago, um, we came into 2017 with a seven, $16 million surplus, excuse me, a $16 million uh, surplus, um, or fund balance, as my bean counters call it. Um, the water utility um, is now recognized not just nationally, but internationally. I've traveled to, to uh, Quebec City, Canada, to speak on a panel about how a struggling urban municipality with old um, aging infrastructure uh, was able to transform and turn around a water utility without doing the obvious, um, easy uh, shortcut that most towns do, which is sell it to a private company, do a 30, 50-year lease to a private company, or come out with, with plans and throw their hands up in the air and say, we can't afford to implement our plan. Um, we put our plan into action, and it's working. We're very proud about that. Um, our golf course went from losing $300,000 a year before I took office. We shut it down for a year. Everyone speculated that I would sell it to some uh, investor to build residential housing. Um, we applied for a $6.5 million bond from the uh, state government, and we invested about $3.5 million into building a brand-new golf course, added a driving range for passive revenue, and we just uh, had a grand opening for a $4 million clubhouse and restaurant uh, par 440 at the uh, uh, facility that opened in June, and I'm happy to say that as of Wednesday of last week, we brought in a million dollars, excuse me, $950,000 of revenue for calendar year 2017, and we are well on our way to clearing a million dollars this year. Wow. So those are the exciting things that I like about government, again, running it like a business, um, but being compassionate with respect to what our goals and objectives are. Um, and it's not necessarily a return on investment to the shareholders, but it's really effectuating change and improving people's quality of life. Well, congratulations on all those achievements. Now, this reminds me that you've always been in lead, interested in leadership. I know you talk to students. It's something that you 
were thoughtful about way back when you were a student yourself. And so I'm noticing as you're talking maybe three parts of your leadership approach. One of them is you've used the word integrity a few times. Maintaining integrity feels like it's um, something that's important to you. Compassion is another word you've used. But you're also um, a guy who wants to have a plan and manage the money. And then you sounded very enthusiastic when you were talking about the importance of attracting young people and getting them involved. When, when you're talking with the young people who work with you or you're talking with young people out in the community, what do you say to them about leadership? How do you encourage um, other people to, to enjoy the value of leadership and aspire to take some responsibility in their communities? Um, it, it's hard because every person is different and there are so many different types and styles of successful leadership, um, um, just as there are unsuccessful ones. Um, I often, uh, you know, tell people that in order to lead, you need people who want to follow. And so you have to be a likable person in some respects. Um, but you also have to be willing to piss people off sometimes, excuse my language, um, because you're not going to be able to make everybody happy, um, but you have to be able to make, you know, the best decision at the time with the information you have that is, you know, best for the organization and or for the most amount of people. Um, I often quote uh, Vince Lombardi in his famous speech of, you know, what it takes to be number one, uh, where he starts off by saying winning is not a sometime thing. Um, you don't win once in a while. You don't do things right once in a while. You do them right all the time because winning is a habit, but unfortunately so is losing. And so I try to tell folks to, you know, establish winning habits, um, whether it be fitness, you know, try to be in shape, you know, that, that affects you know, how you're perceived, um, that affects your energy level, that affects your ability to get things done. Um, I try to talk about preparedness, um, you know, the, the kind of corny adage that our parents taught us, but it's better to uh, uh, be prepared for an opportunity and not have one than to have an opportunity and not be prepared. So, you know, always be ready, ABC, always be closing. These are different things that, you know, I've picked up on that I try to tell them um, to be ready because, you know, not many folks have the opportunity to ha have as much access to a mayor or to a CEO or to be able to say, hey, come with me to this meeting um, at Public Service Electric and Gas where there's going to be, you know, regional vice presidents. And while you'll just be sitting there as a fly on the wall, who else gets to be that fly? Um, so, you know, be ready for those opportunities so you can grow. And I often tell folks, don't, well, I don't want you to grow up to be like me. Um, I want you to be better than me. And so I'm providing folks with tools and opportunities and resources to hopefully take advantage of that. I think that uh, one of the things you just mentioned is being fit, you know, taking care of yourself, having good habits. That's a quality of leadership that sometimes people don't stumble on until they're a little older. But it feels like it's a, it's a part of your administration. I noticed somewhere that you have a quality of life task force. Is, what is that? And does that relate to your concept of, of how we become leaders in our communities? Thank you for bringing that up. Um, well, first I'll say I, I, I've led by example. I've lost about 30 pounds over the last year. Um, you know, I, I went from working myself to death uh, to trying to work myself into, into shape so I can live longer and be a better leader. <laughs> um, our Quality of Life Task Force is a multi-departmental uh, initiative we put together when I first took office. Um, you know, we were battling a lot of the issues that many urban cities across our country face. 
uh, blight of vacant and abandoned properties. Uh, New Jersey has one of the highest foreclosure rates in the country. Um, and so we, with little access to resources from the private sector and or from our state government, um, we had to look ourselves in the mirror and look at ourselves across the boardroom table and say, how can we fix our local economy and or position and package it the best way to make it marketable? Um, and the reality is if you take care of your stuff, it, it will take care of you, so to speak. Um, and so we assembled this team. We went out into the community. We literally walked, myself included, with our police chief, our public safety director, our Department of Property Maintenance, Public Works, Health and Human Services. We will walk in our business districts, in our residential districts, um, and just assess the number of vacant properties where, where contractors were illegally dumping, um, assess the quality of restaurants and businesses, um, how they were maintaining the inside and outside of their establishments. And then we did our research. Um, we found that there was legislation that was enacted in about 2004 that allowed municipalities to create a vacant and abandoned properties registry. Um, the problem with that legislation was I don't think any city in New Jersey had utilized it. <laughs> so we were one of the first to kind of dust it off and create this registry where we listed vacant properties. We would have to make contact with the banks or the landlords or the owner of the property. We would give them the opportunity to uh, fix up their property, cut the grass, board it up, get it back on the tax rolls. Long story short, to date, we've identified over 1,000 vacant and abandoned properties in our city. We've gotten about 250 of them back on the tax rolls. Um, we have hired about a dozen East Orange residents to work with us to clean up and board up those properties. We charge the banks and or the landlords an administrative fee for us doing that. We have generated almost $2.1 million over the last two and a half years of unanticipated revenue uh, through this program. And we were just recognized in June of this year by Waste Management uh, at the uh, annual Conference of Mayors in Miami Beach with the City Livability Award for small cities with our Don't Dump on EO campaign, uh, which was an initiative to raise awareness about a clean and safe community. Uh, we had a poster contest in our elementary and middle schools, and we've got young people engaged and involved with you know, the importance of respecting their community. You know, treat your community like your own backyard. You don't want someone dumping trash in your backyard, so why would you dump it in your community? And that's been really working. We're very proud about that. Wow, that sounds like a fabulous program. You mentioned raising awareness and getting the word out about this and some of your other projects. These days, we don't have as many small local media as we used to. Sometimes the relationship between media and um, uh, governments is, is pretty rocky. How do you go about getting the word out, and what kind of media situation um, do you find yourself in? Well, we've, we've used, you know, the, the Facebook, um, we, we tweet. I don't know how to tweet, but our, our president does. Uh -huh. <laughs> but we uh, you know, use all those forms of media. There are uh, Snapchat, which, uh, you know, I, I am often reminded by some of those young folks that I'm not a millennial. <laughs> so there are other mediums that they use um, that we take advantage of to get the word out. Um, what, what I've also noticed, uh, because we came in trying to be cost conscious, so rather than spending, you know, literally ten or fifteen thousand dollars, you know, to mail out a piece of paper about a program, um, you know, multiplied by you know three dozen times a year, we said we'll use email and, and Facebook. And what I realized and recognized was that a large 
uh, majority of our population aren't using those media. They're senior citizens, or they're not necessarily at a job where they have access to a computer all day. Um, they not, may not be as attached to their smartphone as I unfortunately am. Um, and so we've tried to like kind of layer our communication so that we don't miss anybody. Um, we do uh, robocalls uh, throughout our community um, using our technology in City Hall. Um, we advertise on billboards um, and other placards throughout the city. Um, and sometimes we'll go door to door if it's an initiative affecting a certain segment that I really want to have people come out and uh, take part in. You mentioned you have a big immigrant population. How do you reach them? Um, well, I'm happy to say that, you know, our administration, you know, also reflects the community. Um, we have uh, our director of recreation is Haitian American. Um, and I'm happy to say that we've you know, won national awards through President Obama's uh, My Brother's Keeper and uh, First Lady Michelle Obama's uh, Let's Move initiative with recreational programming in our city. Um, we have one of the state's first and only autistic water safety programs in partnership with a local nonprofit, um, Nassan's Place, that services hundreds of families. Um, and so those are, through our recreation initiative, we're able to, to touch the immigrant uh, population. Um, our city administrator um, is Latino. Um, our, our chief prosecutor is Latino. Um, I probably have more women in my cabinet of, let's say, 13 cabinet-level positions. I think seven or eight are women. Um, and so we're able to, not that you know, women are the uh, immigrant population, but in terms of minority um, and, and I'll say underrepresented in terms of positions of leadership, that is reflected in our community. And I charge them to go out to their social networks, to their churches, to their, you know, the clubs that they're involved in to help spread the word, um, to help validate what it is we're doing in the city because it can't always come from Lester Taylor. Um, we need other people to validate, you know, what it is we're doing. And I'm reminded of a book that I'm actually reading now, uh, Thank You for Being Late by Thomas Friedman. Um, I was reading it this morning while I was on the elliptical machine. Um, but it just talks about technology and, and, and how... Um, you know, rapid, you know, both business and people can utilize technology to get things done. And it's just very encouraging that we're doing it here in a city that in many respects was overlooked um, for, you know, two to three decades before. It sounds like you've done some amazing things, and I congratulate you, including on losing 30 pounds. You really um, <laughs> are kind of walking the talk on that one. As a final question, let me ask. What advice do you have for people who are in other communities across the country and other cities that are facing many challenges? If they've never been involved in public service, if they've never been involved in politics, but they feel like now's the time, they want to do something to be part of the change, where do folks start doing something like that? They can start anywhere. They can start with their neighbor. Um, you know, I think that humility is a big part of public service, um, recognizing that you don't have to be the CEO, you don't have to be the mayor, you don't have to be the council person uh, to effectuate change and make a positive impact on your community. Um, and in many respects, uh, some of the block association leaders and or community figures um, oftentimes have more influence than the mayor may have. <laughs> That's why the mayors go to those people to get things done. <laughs> um, and so I think it's important to start there. Um, and also recognize from a priority standpoint, especially for younger people, um, you know, what it is you want with your life, what's your, you know, 12-month, three-year, 
five and ten year plan. If it's to make money, then public service might not be for you right now. Um, and if it is, it'll probably end badly for you. And so it's important to figure out your priorities and, and be able to match them with your actions day in and day out to find out which lane you fit in um, to make the most impactful change in your community. Um, but I think that everyone has to, it's incumbent upon us as Americans, as citizens, uh, to get involved, not just in our democracy from a voting standpoint, um, but in our communities from a quality of life standpoint. I think that's excellent advice for us to close on. Congratulations, Mr. Mayor. I think I'm proud of you. I don't have any claim to um, take pride myself, but I, I'm proud to have known you all these years. You've done some amazing things, and I'm going to be interested to see what you do next. Thank you, Bev. I'm running for Father of the Year, so I'm in a heated campaign right now and trying to get my daughter a pony so I can get her a vote. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks again. Thank you. Today we've been talking with Lester Taylor, elected in 2014 as the second youngest mayor of East Orange, New Jersey. Today's career tip is that there are many different styles of leadership, but you can learn to find your style by practicing now. Identify the leadership characteristics that matter to you, like integrity, compassion, or a willingness to try new things. And today, go out and act more like that. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. 